Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? We're in the middle of our series on the rise of the religious right. And in our last episode, we saw how the moral majority formed and helped Ronald Reagan secure the presidency in 1980. But what would it have been like to live through the late 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s as this merger between Republicans and evangelicals really took root? And what would it have been like if you yourself identified with the left and not the right? And what might be the long-term consequences of living in constant dissonance with evangelical Republicans? Well, there's perhaps no better person to talk about that exact subject than David Gushy, because he really did live through it all. He became a Christian in the Southern Baptist Church and cut his teeth as a Christian ethicist in the Southern Baptist Seminary, and he was there while it was becoming increasingly conservative. In the 2000s, he became every liberal's favorite evangelical because he spoke out against torture in the Bush administration and against nuclear proliferation, and he was eventually recruited by the Obama campaign during the 2008 presidential election to help with their outreach to evangelicals. But a lifetime in the culture war has definitely left its scars on Dr. David Gushy. In the mid-2010s, I remember hearing terms like ex-evangelical or post-evangelical. And at the time, I kind of liked them because, well, it put distance between me and the political movement that often took the name of evangelicalism. And yet, as these movements of ex-evangelical and post-evangelical developed, it became clear to me that those terms were increasingly being used to jettison a biblical sexual ethic, to limit the authority of the Bible. And even more alarming, it seemed to me that they were making their own political union with progressives, which is exactly what we saw happen on the other side. It seemed like they were affirming everything that the left defined as right, as, well, being right according to the Bible. Now, it's during this exact same period that gay Christians like Matthew Vines and other Christians like Austin Hartke were mounting very public campaigns from within the evangelical movement to change the church's perspective on LGBT issues. And while I strongly affirm that Christians should love the LGBT community and actively welcome them into our churches, it seems to me that the Bible's vision of sex within marriage between a man and a woman is absolutely crystal clear, as is its understanding of male and female being two immutable features of our identity as humans. So it's at this point that I started reading Dr. Gushy's work. His book, After Evangelicalism, is perhaps the single best description of post-evangelicals, and it's written by someone who now identifies as post-evangelical. Here's the deal. Dr. Gushy has moved away from a lot of his older positions over time, and he is further on the left than he was even in the mid-2000s, which means that we have profound disagreements about what the Bible says about sex and sexual ethics, and we have disagreements about the Bible itself and its authority 
in our lives. But once I read his autobiography, Still Christian, I felt like I understood how Dr. Gushy ended up where he's at today. We think choosing truth over tribe looks like holding open dialogues with people who don't share even some of your most important convictions. This is part of being open to the truth. Look, if David Gushy has Jesus right and I have Jesus wrong, then I need to change. But beyond that, it's about resisting the allure of tribalism. Some people will be incredibly angry that we're quote-unquote platforming Dr. Gushy. I get it, but I don't live in a world where it's me against him or me against anyone, really. So I hope that this models for you and for others what it looks like to have a winsome, loving dialogue with someone who's in a different camp. I hope it's a reminder that people come to their positions in the context of their own personal story. I hope it's an encouragement for followers of Jesus to resist the allure of secularism, to consider his arguments, but I think ultimately come to the conclusion that David Gushy, as smart as he is, might not be in the right place. No matter how backwards or regressive the culture says our views about sex, sexuality, the Bible, and its authority really are. So this is an interesting conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. I love talking to Dr. Gushy. I learned from him, and he is a great, respectful guy. Let's hop in. David, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Patrick, it's an honor. It's good to be with you. Tell us the story of how you started following Jesus. Well, I was raised Roman Catholic, and it was a big parish in Northern Virginia. My mom was a devout Catholic. My father was not church-going at that time. I was the oldest of four. It was the rebellious early 70s, late 60s, early <laughs> 70s. Um, I can't say I remember that. <laughs> there was a certain kind of spirit in the air. But anyway, the Catholic Church, it, I didn't connect with it, partly because it was what mom was wanting us to do, almost a, a family rebellion thing. Partly, I think, because the Catholic Church was a little confused at the time and about what it was going to be after Vatican II. In high school, sophomore year, I met a Southern Baptist girl, and you know, that's how things go so often, right? You know, I, I, I <laughs> you know what? I married a Southern Baptist girl. Well, there you go. It's interesting. She was kind of a rebellious Southern Baptist girl, but it was through her that I first set foot in a Southern Baptist church. And in the summer of 1978, I was literally just kind of stumbling around looking for some answers. And I was at the mall, and the mall was right next to the church that she went to. And on a Friday afternoon, I just wandered into that church uninvited. The doors were open. (laughs) And I wandered into that church. I guess I said, I'd like to talk to the youth minister. He's here. And he was there. And it just turned out that they were having a youth weekend with all the cool stuff. And so I went to the Friday night miniature golf and the Saturday night this and then Sunday morning that. And. By Monday, I was at a Bible study in which the youth were being trained in evangelism. And it was only in that session that it became clear to me that I was not a Christian Hmm. because I did not have a story that went something like, here's what my life was like before I met Christ. Here's how I met Christ. Here's how my life has changed. I did not have that story. The Holy Spirit was alive in that woman, the teacher. She was a woman, actually, a deacon in the church. I think the first female deacon in that church. And I was responsive and I was asking all kinds of questions. And by the end of the evening, I had accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, as we used to say it. I was immediately plunged into that 
church into a very active youth group discipled as a follower of Jesus. Within six months, I was sure my calling was to be a Baptist pastor. I was president of the youth group. Anyway, it's just, it totally turned my life around. A high school conversion experience in an evangelistic Southern Baptist church. That's amazing. Now, obviously, very early on in your journey, you started to feel tensions between what you read in the Bible and what you heard in evangelical teaching. What One area that comes to mind is pacifism, which I share your convictions. I would also describe myself as a pacifist. But I'm curious, just as an example, what, what ended up leading you into pacifism? To stay with the narrative just a bit, I would say that in that first church, they never talked about social ethical issues like that at all. The only thing they talked about was things like personal holiness, personal morality, following Jesus, no cursing, tell everybody about Jesus. Was dancing allowed? Uh, no dancing, no dancing, no drinking, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. My father was a policy analyst for the U.S. government. So we talked a lot about meaty policy issues like war or environment or economics and stuff like that, but that never happened in church. So it was only really when I went to seminary and started studying ethics, that those issues became integrated seriously into my faith. And you were at Southern Baptist I went to Southern Baptist Seminary, Seminary in the mid-80s, just before the conservative resurgence and a change in leadership there. My main teacher of ethics at Southern was a man named Glenn Stassen. He was essentially yeah. a pacifist, though his theory of just peacemaking is what he wanted to talk about. I mean, that's essentially what I would say. I've never, I don't think I've ever described myself as a pacifist per se. I don't think there's a sentence in my writing that says, I am a pacifist. I am opposed to the routine resort to war. And I do believe that we should be making peace. And also that if we ever unleash all these weapons that we have, nuclear weapons will all be annihilated. So that, see, when, if you're thinking about those issues, when I was coming through, it was during the Cold War, US, Soviet Union, yeah. thousands of nuclear weapons, a lot of fear of that. Nuclear pacifism was a thing. So I would say I'm anti-war, but there was space for that in the evangelical world that I was in at that time. It wasn't really a problem. I ran into a problem on other issues, probably, as you know, but not really on pacifism. Just running down this trail for a second, as we talk about this particular topic, being uh, against war, and like you said, you, you haven't called yourself a pacifist, so I apologize if I slapped that label unfairly on you. Uh, but one of the things that people will often bring up is practical considerations. You know, They'll say, well, in this area of war, in a world that's broken by human pride and idolatry and racism, war is going to be unavoidable, and it's going to be sometimes necessary for peace and justice. I had someone recently point me to the example of uh, William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist and was very against war. And he had a big influence on Frederick Douglass, who was early on also against war. Eventually, Douglass is connected with John Brown and others who violently resist slavery. And then the Civil War starts and William Lloyd Garrison, who had previously been very against war, he kind of turns. He does an about face and he says, okay, kind of looking at these practical realities of the Civil War, this is the only way we're going to end slavery. And so he sets aside his pacifism and says, yes, Christians should take up arms and go to war. And so I am curious, do you think that a practicality ever justifies or necessitates war? Actually, I do. Though I think that about 98% of the time that <laughs> people have thought that a war was inevitable or unavoidable or justifiable, it probably wasn't. I do think there are rare exceptions. I'm actually teaching a class this fall on the ethics of war and working through all of those theories, pacifism, just war theory, holy war, just peacemaking, 
and so on. And, you know, there's an argument to be made for all of them. I'm not an absolutist on these issues. I remember that I was on an airplane once during the time where there was a lot of terrorism. And I was on an airplane coming out of Israel. And there was a person acting really, really in an agitated way around the time. Do you remember the shoe bomber? Yeah. The guy who was about to try to bring a plane down by lighting the bomb. And he was wrestled into submission by the other people on the plane so that everybody on that plane could live. And when that person was agitated, I was preparing myself for having to do the same thing. The, the just war theory says that, as I understand it, as a last resort under extraordinary circumstances, sometimes the innocent must be protected using force. And I think that's true. But the bigger question is, how do we follow the peaceable Jesus in such a way as to create as many paths to peace and peacemaking as we can find? So that, I think, is the peacemaking question. And that was what I was taught to focus on. I think that's the right question. Let's keep going through your story. Obviously, you end up getting a, a PhD at, at Union. Is that, is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, you end up teaching at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, your alma mater. No. Um, now, you had even then some differences with a lot of the people who might have been on the faculty with Southern and then other areas where you've been in, in, in great agreement with them. But why do you think Southern brought you there despite some of the obvious differences? Because it was a most unusual transition moment. The faculty in the spring of 1993 was still dominated by more moderate Baptist types. Most of them would not have called themselves evangelicals, and they were certainly anti-fundamentalists. But the new president coming in, he wasn't in place when I was hired. He was just around the corner, was Al Mohler, and everybody knows who Al Mohler is. And the trustee board had just flipped to be under more conservative control. So they were trying to thread the needle with an ethicist who could be acceptable to the faculty and to the new administration. And that's like camel through the eye of a needle thing at that time. <laughs> the fact that I was pro-life on abortion, serious about scripture was important. The fact that I was egalitarian on gender roles, it was okay at that moment. Two years later, it wasn't okay. So institutions are interesting because they, they evolve. This one evolved, was evolving at the time I was hired and evolved rapidly after I was hired. So I could never have been hired three years later, but I was hireable in 1993. So you come to Southern Baptist at the exact same time as Al Mohler does, and, and you tell the story of the conservative takeover of Southern Baptist, that a lot of the moderate professors were ejected and a lot of new standards were added in that would make one qualify or not qualify for teaching there, which previously hadn't been held. And so I'm curious, why did you leave? Because I could never have been tenured there unless I was willing to lie about my beliefs about uh, women in ministry. That was the flashpoint issue at that time. The question was framed, do you believe it is acceptable within the terms of scripture for women to serve in pastoral ministry or as senior pastors? Sometimes it varied, but it was that essentially that question. And a lot of people were fudging or coming up with very clever answers to that question in order to get through that grid. But I wasn't willing to do that. I mean, I was tempted. As you saw in my memoir, I was tempted because they, they liked me and I was already rising. I think I had a bright future there, but I wasn't willing to compromise on that, partly because of women ministers who were important in my life. 
fortunately, I had an escape. I had another offer from David Dockery to go to Union University in West Tennessee, and I, I was able to get out. You know, a lot of people's careers were ruined during that time, like stuck, unmovable, were not really able to stay, but didn't have any place else to go. The, the politics of academia can be really awful, and it certainly was at that time. What did your experience at Southern Baptist teach you about evangelicalism in general? I mean, it seems like a very formative moment in your life when I read your autobiography. Yeah, it really was, Petra. It taught me that really smart, learned people can disagree utterly about things and be sure that they are right, each side, and be sure that high matters of biblical truth are at stake and that it's not possible to compromise. Meanwhile, you have political powers and pressures that affect how things actually work out. Uh, how much power does a person have in the system might have some impact on what they're able to get away with and how much diversity of opinion is, is allowed. And But, you know, the idea that three years before a certain belief was seen as perfectly acceptable or even dominant, and three years later a belief gets you fired, it certainly reinforced for me the changeability of institutions, the role of power, and the fact that perspectives do not equal truth. And that the Christian community is filled with visions, sometimes bitterly and brutally advanced, with people getting chewed up in the process. So it was a very disillusioning experience. It certainly showed me the humanity and the brutality of, of even Christian institutions. It strikes me, and I'm curious if you'll disagree with me on this. I did not grow up in or around, in any remote sense, uh, the Southern Baptist tradition. Never gone to a Southern Baptist church. I've I, it's just it's just completely outside. I mean, the closest I get to it, like I said, is that, that was my wife's experience growing up. So she tells me things, but outside of that, it's just it, it's not something that I think a lot about. It's not something I've been shaped by. And as I read your book it struck me that it seems like a lot of times you are responding to a particular version of evangelicalism, which was most clearly articulated in the version of Southern Baptist theology and thinking that you just described a moment ago. In other words, it doesn't ring true to me of the evangelicalism that I've experienced or I've been a part of. And so I want to know, I mean, do, do you think your critiques of evangelicalism are maybe narrowly focused in one part of evangelicalism? Or, or is there a reason why you stay focused in that particular area? Or maybe you're going to say, you know what, I think I, th I hit the whole thing. You're wrong. I'm, I'm open to either. Southern evangelicalism and Southern Baptist convention, which has its own independent life apart from evangelicalism, and a lot of people wouldn't even say it is evangelical. It's Southern Baptist, right? It's just different. White Southern evangelicalism has, and Baptist especially, has a certain kind of flavor to it that has been tinged by the by the racism and the entire regional history. I, I'm sitting here in Atlanta talking to you today. The regional history of how Christianity has developed here in the burned-over, uh, revivalist, Southern Baptist South. Southern Methodist, Southern Baptist. But I've also got, I've had a lot of experiences in the rest of evangelicalism. You know, in my career, I traversed all up and down, in and out, both in the U.S. and beyond every kind of, you know, National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Today, Wheaton, Gordon, Calvin, Fuller, you name it. I, I spoke there. I wrote for them. I did stuff there. I do, generally speaking, think that Northern and Western and often Midwestern evangelicals don't have some of the excesses of the South. 
but I think that in many ways the critique holds. I do think the the greater distinction may be between British and European evangelicals versus American evangelicals. I think there's something distinctively American that I am critiquing. What would that be? For example, the entanglement of evangelical identity with the Republican Party, because that's an American thing. The entanglement of evangelicalism with Donald Trump. I mean, that's a very American thing and a very recent American thing. The sense of entitlement to cultural power that I think is very much there in, in evangelicalism, that's just not the cultural situation for evangelicals in places like France or Germany or Great Britain. And so there's, there's a greater humility. Talk about that for a second, Neil, because I think that's actually one of the areas where I felt the most dissonance with some of the things that you said. Now, again, I'm a millennial. I became a Christian in 2006, and my experience in Christianity, generally speaking, I'm a Christian during eight years of President Obama being in office. I never thought or expected that Christians were going to have cultural power. I didn't expect us to be in charge in Hollywood. I never expected us to be in charge in the media or in politics. Now, again, maybe I'm just live, I was living in this weird fringe universe of evangelicalism. Now I know evangelicals who expect the, the cultural power, but I know plenty who don't. So I guess my question is twofold. What, what do you mean by cultural power? What is that expectation that a lot of evangelicals have? And do you think that there are evangelicals or a growing movement of evangelicals who are resisting that now? It helps. See, here, the generation, I think, does make a difference. The birth of the Christian right in the late 70s with people like Jerry Falwell Sr., Pat Robertson, people like that. Christian coalition doesn't even exist anymore, I think. You know, moral majority. They wanted to take America back for God. They wanted... Have you read that book, Taking America Back for God? It's a pretty good book. It is, yep. They wanted... <laughs> they wanted, And they wrote books like Taking America Back for God, and they really meant it at that time, mm-hmm. you know? And... And they thought, well, and you know what I think it was, was in a sense, the evangelism strategy that had been so important to evangelicals earlier, the way we will take America back for God is by telling people about Jesus and they'll convert. I think that as America became more religiously pluralistic and even religiously indifferent, and as evangelism wasn't working very well, I think, and as some legal changes were alarming to these evangelicals, I think that they began to believe that a political strategy was more relevant than an evangelistic strategy. And so they began, they went to Ronald Reagan and said, Ronald Reagan, be our, be our hero. And he, he kind of promised to be, and he kind of was. And since then, this group of politicized white evangelicals has been looking to the Republican Party to be that for them. I did an interview with someone recently who would very much so fall into this party. And I asked him, why did he like Donald Trump so much? And his answer was, well, he gave me a seat at the table. He gave us power. He gave us a voice again, which I found alarming because on one level, I look at Jesus' example and he was precisely the opposite. He didn't go seeking after the places of power, but he went to the places uh, in the margins and transformed people's hearts and lives and their communities. And so I, I, I think what you're saying is really interesting here.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. You know that Keith and I both care deeply about the intersection of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom and culture and politics. What you might not realize is that we have a far deeper passion for God's word. Before we started Truth Over Tribe, we had a different podcast that we are still running called 10-Minute Bible Talks. And if you're trying to find a way to get consistent time with God throughout the week in his word, I want to encourage you to go check out that podcast, 10-Minute Bible Talks. We do little 10-minute podcast devotionals chapter by chapter through the Bible. And just like this podcast, I think you'll find it interesting and thought-provoking and challenging in all the right ways. But above all else, you'll find that you are pointed to Jesus, to love him more in your heart, to follow him with your hands in your life, and to see how the gospel of the kingdom truly transforms everything. So pause the episode and get onto your favorite podcast app and search for 10-Minute Bible Talks and start that journey today. A little bit back into your story, obviously you end up going to a Union University and, and you said in the mid-2000s, you were every liberal's favorite evangelical. What do you mean by that? I had the secure place in the evangelical world as, let's just say, go-to ethicist. So you want to have a seminar on whatever, invite Gushy. So I did, I mean, chapels and conferences and church stuff, school stuff all over the country. A lot of my social ethical convictions were progressive, like uh, like my teachers, Glenn Stassen and Ron Sider, who wrote Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Jim Wallace was a friend, and I've always been influenced by his vision, right? And then the later generation is people like Shane Claiborne. So those evangelicals were really more my tribe. And so if you want me to come speak about war or the environment or gender or whatever, I'm going to be lean left. There were a few major disputes in the Bush years that I got really visible on, on, and I was seen as on the left. Those were climate change and torture. And I wrote about those in the book. Climate change, a group of evangelicals, as worries about climate change really began to become more important, a group of evangelicals, a group of us got involved in saying, this is real, we need to work on this. And I was in that. And then after 9-11, when when we were horrified by the terrorist attacks and started brutalizing and torturing people, our government, I wrote in opposition to that. And so by 2007, 2008, I was very nationally visible on those two issues, which made the progressives, including non-Christians, happy to know that there were such voices, but the more conservative evangelicals did not like that very much. Yeah, and I think it might surprise some of our younger listeners to uh, realize that issues like torture were so much up for grabs or were such a part of the national dialogue at the time. I mean, I remember it very distinctly. I was in high school at the time, but I remember people debating and talking about, is this is this moral? Is this ethical? How should Christians react? And I, I was for sure around Christians who said, oh yeah, we, we torture is ethical. We need to be doing this. And I appreciate your, I would say, prophetic witness and challenging that perspective. You've also talked about how you became involved in some ways with the Obama campaign. Can you share more about that? And this is interesting, to, and I want to loop back to your a person you interviewed about Trump, right? Yeah. Obama had a religious outreach operation that was pretty vigorous. 
Well, it made a lot of sense. Here's a guy who, by all accounts, has a healthy marriage and a healthy family life, has spoken very publicly about his faith and how it shaped his life. And so, you know, at the time, I mean, I remember being a Christian and thinking, well, here's a guy who, who seems really authentic in his walk and his faith with Jesus, even who's coming out of a different tradition than my own. So the, so the religious outreach part actually makes a lot of sense to me in retrospect. He was trying to show to middle America that he was a Christian of sound personal morality and moral values, but he was also building a religious outreach operation, which is part of how you run for president now. So you reach out to pastors, professors, leaders of various types, and maybe create advisory boards and get get uh, phone calls. And that's still happening, by the way, with Biden. Hillary, her campaign was not as good at it, which may be one of the reasons why she lost. Politically, the idea is to maybe make inroads with religious, but progressive people to not concede religious voters to the Republicans. And because I was a visible evangelical, that was especially interesting because they knew that if they could get some evangelical votes, they'd never get a majority, but if they could get some, it might matter. And it did matter. And when it was Obama versus Romney and Obama versus McCain, they did decently, definitely better than anybody did against Trump. So politically, it was relevant to them. It was also relationship building. You know, I did write in my memoir that I was aware that all such entanglements with politicians are complex and problematic at times. And I remember I was invited to the Denver convention where he was nominated. And I was asked to sit on a panel. I think I forget what I was talking about. But at that point, with all the Obama stickers behind me and stuff, I was aware I am in this system. I am now part of the 2008 Democratic convention with Obama uh-huh. stickers behind me. And in general, that's more direct involvement than I want to have with politicians. That's a little, it's a little close. Do you regret that? Do you regret, you know, I, you brought up the example of the previous person I interviewed. Do you feel like you were entangled in politics and power in an unhealthy way or that perhaps you were allured into particular positions or ideas so that you could become more palatable to those kinds of power players? Uh, I didn't change any positions because of it, but I was aware that I was being used something I would say, and then I would say that to the Trump people too, to the people who were sitting around the table with Trump. You are being used. You may think you are using, but you are influencing, but you are being used. And you may think you are, and it's a reasonable question, Patrick, you may think you are influencing, but you have to ask, how are you being influenced? How, are the things that, that you are thinking are acceptable now that you would not have thought is acceptable until you were sitting in the room with this person, right? It's a really legitimate question. Now, what's the thing that's interesting? It was that when Democrats do religious outreach now, picture a round table with 12 people. It's going to be Muslim, Jewish, Protestant, white Protestant, black Protestant, Catholic, Sikh, Hindu, Buddhist. It's a multi-faith table as well as maybe some humanists who have moral commitments, right? So that's the, that's a democratic table. Republicans don't do their religious table that way as much. It's more of a Christian table and it's more of a white table and it's more of an evangelical table. And I think that that was very attractive to a lot of people who wanted to be around Trump. He basically said, I'm your president and you will have a major voice with me the way things should be, ought to be. And that was part of how he reeled in evangelical. Hmm. So 
After Obama's campaign, you eventually decide to take the exit ramp, as it were, out of the evangelical world. And it's funny, as I read your book, I wasn't totally clear if you got kicked out or if you voluntarily left or if it's a bit of both. But tell us about why you left evangelicalism behind. To some extent, it had been building for a while. Who was the religious community most likely to support torture? White evangelicals. Who was the religious community most likely to be dubious about doing anything about climate change? White evangelicals. Who is the religious community most xenophobic about immigration? White evangelicals. In other words, white evangelicals were arguing with me about many, many issues that I cared about long before 2014. And then when Obama was elected president, I saw some more overt racism coming out of white evangelicals that was really problematic to me. Are you talking about the birther movement or all that? Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought it really got even more explicit with some folks with Trump. As you know, in 2014, I decided it's time to take on the LGBT issue. And so I wrote this book called Changing Our Mind, in which I what it was initially was a series of articles. I want to try to wrestle with this issue from the ground up and see where I go. The, The outcome was not predetermined when I started. I was exploring. But in the end, I ended up developing a book that was intended to be an entry into what what seemed like a growing evangelical conversation. Let's talk about this. We can have we can talk about this like we can talk about other things. And there actually were at that time forums and conversations happening in Christian colleges all over the country. So I wrote this book, ended up being called "Changing Our Mind" because I ended up concluding it was time to change our mind that we had made a mistake on this issue. And in that, to be honest. I did not know that that was my exit ramp out of evangelicalism when I started the book. It certainly was in terms of the response to the book, which was a resolute, hell no, and you're done. And so, you know, canceled invitations and canceled book contracts and canceled friendships. And I mean, I experienced cancel culture, right? 2014. (laughs) To some extent, it now feels like it was naive to think that that I could still remain an evangelical ethicist and take an inclusive position on that issue. But I thought there was space for that. I thought maybe I had the stature to at least have a conversation, to be in the conversation while still being evangelical, but it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, so since then I've been rethinking kind of like, why was I ever an evangelical in the first place? And did that ever really fit for me and all that? But that wasn't where I was in 2014. Again, to be candid, you and I probably have some disagreements on this issue and I'd like to talk more about that. but. Before we do, I, I want to ask you a, a few questions. You know, right now we're seeing, I wouldn't say it's a, a massive or a large movement, but we're seeing a growing movement that is sometimes called ex-evangelical, post-evangelical, progressive evangelical deconstruction. And your book on post-evangelicalism is kind of viewed by some as kind of the, the Bible of, of this movement, not in the sense that it's an authoritative text, but as it's it describes a lot of people's experiences and the views of a lot of people inside of these movements. But I'm curious... Are these all the same movement in, in your view? What ties all of these things together? Another great question. You are a great interviewer, Patrick. This is awesome, man. Um, um, <laughs> so, well, wait until we get to the end. I'm, I'm sure I'll say something. You're going to hang up. Like, I'm out. I'm Let's done go. with you, man. Uh, no. So progressive evangelicalism was, was already there. In 2008, I wrote a book called The Future of Faith in American Politics. And I said, there's an evangelical right, center, and left. Mm-hmm. I said, the right has about 50%. The center has about a third, and the left has the rest. And the left has people like Brian McLaren and Shane Claiborne and Jim Wallace and Ron Sider and people like that. And then, of course, a lot of evangelicals of color. 
And would you agree? I'm just, just so I yeah. can paint the picture here. The evangelical left, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong here, it, it, it probably doesn't share your views on the Bible in terms of inspiration and inerrancy and maybe your sexual ethics. Or would you say, no, I, I think they do share my views? I think some do and some don't. Okay. Yeah. And what I think has happened is in the last, really maybe since Obama, but certainly since Trump, that evangelical left has been pushed or has left right out of evangelicalism almost entirely. And so all that's left maybe is an evangelical center and right, maybe. And, and so progressive evangelicals, the space for serious progressive evangelicals to me seems to have shrunk. So that's one exit ramp from progressive evangelicalism into post-evangelicalism. But there are some other ones. One path is trauma. That trauma story is especially clear with women and with LGBT post-evangelicals, as well as those who've been sexually abused in other ways. So sexually abuse, sexual abuse, women under patriarchy, and LGBTQ. So the trauma narrative is really sad, Patrick, because these are people, now church is a place identified with pain and victimization. And a lot of them are leaving not just evangelicalism behind, they're leaving church behind, they're leaving Jesus behind. Mm -hmm. So that's one slice. There are other people who are leaving more for intellectual reasons, and it might be about scripture, or it might be about the anti-science attitude of a lot of evangelicals, or maybe it's some are leaving for political reasons. The identification with Trump was a bridge too far, and they've left because of that, right? We've seen a lot of people do that. On the whole, the numbers are clear. There is an exodus from U.S. white evangelicalism that is profound, and there are a number of paths. And the most recent book that I wrote, here it is, After Evangelicalism, was written to that was the Bible to which I refer. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it was written, <laughs> and you see the cover of the maze there. Uh, basically, the image that I use is that uh, evangelicalism became a maze in which people got stuck. They were separated from Jesus within a religious community that was supposed to help them bring, to bring them closer to Jesus. And so now they're working their way out of it. And my hope as a pastor is that they don't lose Jesus as they leave evangelicalism behind my heart obviously breaks for anyone who's experienced trauma inside the church. I think about a, a woman who was in a, a, a Bible study that I taught years back who had a physically abusive husband, and praise God, she was able to leave him, and that ended in her life. And she very understandably swore off men. I don't want to be around men. I don't want men in my life. And that was for several years. Now, she eventually came around to the position that, you know, she said, you know, I've, I've thought about it and I've realized he was one man. He's not all men. Our marriage is one marriage. It's not all marriages. And her story was that she started pursuing and eventually got married to someone else and by all accounts is in a healthy marriage now. Now, I, that's not going to happen for everybody. And I don't expect it to happen for everybody. But I've kind of wanted the same thing with church trauma. You know, there are churches where there is abuse, but that's not all churches. And I simply will not judge someone who's abused inside a church who refuses to go back. I, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And and yet, sometimes when I hear people talk about church trauma, and I'm, I'm not accusing you of this, but I kind of want your take, 
it seems as though it's discussed as a normative thing. And and maybe I'm wrong, you know, my context is, is our church and I, we're like any church, sin happens, bad things happen. I, I'm sure that there have been hard things that would break my heart here. And uh, But that said, you know, we're a church that I think would probably fall into your camp of evangelicalism. And yet we have racial diversity and we have ideological diversity and we have sexual and even gender diversity here. And even though we have what you would probably call traditional views of sexuality and gender, evangelical views of those things. And, and I think those people who are a part of our community are, I believe, beloved here and welcomed here, despite some of those differences. And so sometimes I hear these stories and I think, well, gosh, I feel bad that those churches exist, but that's not all churches in this camp. So um, would you grant that there are healthy, good evangelical churches where there is space for people in these communities? I'll start by saying, yeah, just because some churches have been traumatizing or abusive environments doesn't mean that all are, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing would be true of Roman Catholic churches, for example, just to skip into a different context. Just because there have been priests who have abused people doesn't mean every priest abuses people, right? So that's really, really important. And you're right to say that while we don't want to judge anybody's inability to go back to church because they've been traumatized, we also don't want to project the message that every church is an abusive community, right? Because that's just Mm -hmm. not true, right? The interesting issue to be joined is whether in the end, traditionalist theology, for example, on gender or on sexuality, ultimately is just intrinsically damaging to those who are on the receiving end and who are not in the majority group. If you are a woman being taught submission to either all men or to husbands, the argument can be made that this is essentially a blessing of injustice and male power in the name of the Bible, in the name of God, and that injustices like that are, they cause harm. It may not be grave harm, always, but it is harmful because it is a diminution of the dignity of the people who are on the submission side as opposed to the leadership side. On the LGBT front, even if a church is kind and welcoming, hey, here comes a lesbian couple and they come to ex-evangelical church and nobody's mean to them and nobody kicks them out and nobody looks at them funny. But in the end, they're going to be told something along the lines of uh, your sexuality is damaged or your relationship is not okay in God's sight or you're not ever going to be able to be a leader here or whatever the boundary line is drawn in that community. And in the end, it's a differential treatment based on a theological or moral judgment that I happen to think is, is, is wrong and that in the end does damage to people. I am appreciative of evangelical churches in which pastors are extremely careful never to attack from the pulpit. I have a lot of LGBT people contact me and tell me a story like this. I thought that the church, the evangelical church I was going to was a good, safe, and loving church. But then my guest preacher dude came one day and he decided it was the time to bash gays. This is going to be Gay Bashing Sunday. And I never expected that for my church, but it happened this day. If you think you're in a safe environment and it turns out that you're not, that is traumatic. And obviously that depends how we define safety and and health. And, you know, again, you and I probably have disagreements here. The story that comes to my mind as, as as you're talking is at our church, we would teach that every person, whether you're straight, gay, 
trans, identify as male, female, it does not matter. Every single one of us is broken sexually in some fashion. And if that is disqualifying for a relationship with Jesus, and we all might as well go ahead and take the exit door. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter anything about you. But I think about uh, one of my friends here at the church who is trans, and she transitioned from a male to a female I believe about 15, 20 years ago, we actually have an interview with her on the podcast. And her story is one of a lot of hurt and a lot of confusion and also a lot of success in life. She was very, very successful in her life, but she did end up transitioning, which caused a huge amount of pain and hurt inside of her family. And as she tells her story, she would say, I'm now, she's much, much older. She's gone through surgery. And she said, look, I'm not going to go back through surgeries to try to go the opposite direction. That seems unwise. And I've already forced my family through a lot of pain going one way. Uh, But she's looked and she said that she's found healing in the church because it's helped her to become more comfortable with who God designed her to be and that she has been welcomed inside of the church in her identity as trans and and is in a place where she's saying, if I could go back in history, I would change these decisions. I, I, I can't undo those decisions, but I have learned in a healing way to accept the givens that God has given me in my life, and I wish I had been able to do that. And so I hear stories like that. And, 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 you know, you can anecdotally come up with a story for every single situation, but that communicates to me, well, here's an example of someone being welcomed into a community and their sexuality being identified as being broken alongside everybody else's. And in the midst of wrestling with that, finding healing and even hope in the resurrection that when, you know, she's resurrected, she'll be a man and that these things will be healed inside of her. And, you know, I, I'm just curious. I mean, what, what do we do with stories like that? I mean, couldn't I say that it would be the opposite of loving? I, I won't go as far to say abusive, but it's the opposite of loving to take someone like that who seems by all accounts to be in a good place and her journey and and, and and not give her the chance to reflect on those God-givens like her gender? Yeah, I think pastorally, you have to do that. Pastorally, you have to go with the person on their journey and provide a place where they can reflect on their journey. And I think it would be wrong for you to say, oh, no, we do not allow, or for anybody to say, we do not allow you to make that interpretation of your story. That would be wrong. If she were instead uh, somebody who who was completely comfortable with the decisions that she had made and did not believe that there were any mistakes on that journey, could you go on that journey just as well with her and she'd be just as accepted and just as welcome and all that? I assume that'd be the case, right? Well, I think that we would welcome her into our our community. I think that we would go on the journey with her. And there are other people in our community who are in that same place who are saying, no, this is where I identify. I think where you and I differ is that I think it brings healing to help someone come to a place of acceptance with their biological givens. I think I think that brings ultimately more healing and transformation in someone's life than allowing them to stay in the place of dissonance with their biological givens. And so I think that's probably where you and I would yeah, diverge. I think, but I do think the transgender issue is enormously complicated. Oh, it, absolutely. It is. And I, I write very little about it because I still, I've noticed that. I still find it enormously complicated. And mm. I think that there is a fair amount of confusion about this issue. And I do know people who have made decisions in this area who have regretted those decisions. Yeah. So it is very complex. It is. And I'm not trying to press you into talking no, about fine. it, but that's fine. You know, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's where we've been. You know, I, I just had a conversation with a teenager, like 19 year old, so not a young teenager uh, last week who was 
talking through his battles with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. And he was sharing how he felt that maybe the issue is that he was living out of alignment with his gender, which was a conclusion he'd drawn relatively recently. It hadn't been a lifelong, uh, ongoing thing for him. And and we had an interesting conversation where I said, you know what? I felt a lot of those same... Actually, when I was your age, I was depressed. I was having suicidal thoughts. I was going through the exact same things. Personally, no one ever suggested to me, I mean, this was 2006, maybe it's because your gender is out of alignment, but that would have been a a narrative that I think would have been attractive potentially at the time. And as we talked, I saw some light bulbs go on and he's sitting there saying, okay, maybe... Maybe I just need to pull back the camera a little bit and ask some big questions here. And what I'm hearing you say, if I'm catching you right, is you you don't want to come down hard on uh, this is a place where we fully accept and and never ask any questions or never allow people to process in in either direction. We have space for detransitioners. We have space for transitioners. And, uh, you know, I I think that's a, a better position to be in than the if someone says I am X it must never be discussed. It's not, it's a, it's not a journey. It's a destination from that point forward. I think the journey image is the right one. And I think with pastoral ministry, you accompany and you listen, you know, and I'm asked really hard questions. I have uh, an email waiting for me right now. And this is not the first one from somebody who this is their story, trying to overcome their lesbian selfhood. They got married to a man. She got married to a man. Now, 15 years later, she and her husband are miserable. What is the Christian moral obligation now? Is divorce acceptable in this situation? What's the higher value here? And and she wants to be a good Christian. She wants to follow Jesus. She wants to do the right thing. I want to position myself alongside you here as a pastor trying to minister to broken people amidst all kinds of complexity. And I also want to say that Cultural narratives are not always to be trusted. In fact, they're often not to be trusted. How people think about their sexuality and what decisions they should make is in part affected by cultural narratives. And if the main cultural narrative is just authenticity, that's not good enough. I think covenant is a more, as you've seen in my writing, covenant is a more central thing. Which I appreciate. I find people barking at me, some from the left, who say that I haven't gone far enough. I'm not liberative enough. I'm still too tethered to traditional values on things like covenant. And so I hope that people who read my stuff will understand that there are boundaries for me too. That's really helpful. And it would be interesting to explore all those. And and I agree with your pastoral point. We do need to situate ourselves alongside people. I think as pastors, we all have a vision or an understanding of what wholeness and health looks like. And the journey that we're taking with people isn't simply alongside them. It is, I hope, I think, a journey towards wholeness and health. And and I agree agree that there's a real risk at at buying into cultural narratives. And it's funny to hear you say that, if I can be honest, because you use the metaphor of a maze, people getting out of this maze of evangelicalism. And I I know that at the Hampton Court maze, they people got lost in these hedge mazes. And I think you talk about that illustration. But one of the things that happened for a brief period of time is they built a platform where a caller would sit and he would help people get out of the maze if they got stuck. You know, they wouldn't be dismayed. And what I'm hearing you say is culture is a terrible caller. It's not the place to go to find your way out of, and obviously I'm moving past the metaphor of evangelicalism. It's just the maze of life itself. It's not the best way to get out of that maze. Again, it's if I can be honest, it's funny to hear you say that because if I were to critique you, it seems to me at times that 
that does seem to be what's driving the conversation as we talk about sexuality. Moving it away from the LGBT thing, I think about you teaching or saying that having sex outside of marriage, it's not immoral. Now, you're pretty clear it needs to be in a monogamous, consensual relationship. There's not any sex outside of marriage. But that seems to me, at least from your writing, to be somewhat rooted in a cultural understanding. I mean, you, you kind of say explicitly, look, puberty's hitting earlier, people are getting married later, and that practical consideration simply means we need to maybe revise how we've thought about sexuality. Do you think that you've run the risk of buying into cultural narratives on some of these topics? It's a legitimate question. I would say, like on that example, Mm-hmm. Historical and contextual realism is how I would describe that dimension, not just a cultural narrative. And the same thing is true, I think, for the LGBT thing. Historical, cultural, and human realism. And by the way, this is actually relevant to the initial question about pacifism. That's why realism sometimes leads us to the place where we have to reluctantly accept the resort to violence. I think it's the same realism about human nature and cultural and historical context that sometimes leads us to a place where we have to reluctantly accept as a concession certain second best options. If marriage is tied to economic stability and a decent income, and that is delayed to the age of 30 for a lot of people, and puberty is at 11, and you've got 20 years in between, what do you do? Well, you create kind of minimalist standards like no abuse, no, no coercive sex, no rape, nothing like that. But maybe you say, in light of all factors, covenantal but not yet marital is, pre- is preferable to the chaos of hookups. It's, it's a step up and maybe it can be a path towards marriage. But I still think that my overall message is the church needs to be a, a, an engine of restoring a marital culture, that we have a lot to, to do there. And a lot of people are giving up on marriage and don't have confidence in marriage, and I think we, we can help there and ensure. It's interesting hearing you say that. One of my close friends uh, earlier in life is gay, and uh, when he became gay, he started going through a, a kind of revolving door of sexual relationships. And after several years, I mean, you could just tell the torment and hurt that was causing in his life. And I remember him telling me, hey, you know, I've met this guy and and they ended up staying together for quite some time. And I always said, you know, people ask, what are you doing when you have this conversation? I say, well, I I encouraged fidelity because fidelity is a biblical value. I, I disagree with his sexual choices and his sexual ethic, but I can affirm that it's better to be with one person than it is to be with many. And so on one level, I feel this area of agreement with you saying, yes, if we're going to help and pastor people, we, we do need to help them uh, take steps in the right direction. I think where I want to press is saying we need to help them go perhaps all the way and draw on other traditions. I think about the tradition of celibacy, Paul and Jesus and others who remained uh, sexually abstinent well into the age range that you're talking about. I wonder if we've given too much over to culture when, when we start saying that that's not an option for people outside of marriage or just impractical outside of marriage. And I think if Jesus is our example, maybe there's a supreme practicality to celibacy, a supreme practicality to remaining without sex. It's certainly an option. It is certainly, I think it's preferable to non-marital sex for sure. Yeah. 
Hmm. But I've just seen too many <laughs> hundreds of people at what for them attempting to do it is impossible and descending kind of like, okay, so the norm is unreachable. And so there is no in-between norm like fidelity. And so therefore it's the wild west. It's, it's anything goes. And by the way, that's that I think that explains a lot on the LGBT front as well, because having not provided any legitimate outlet or expression, it tends to drive people towards chaos and one relationship after another. And so partly these are technical questions of like, <laughs> like, is this a concession to sin, a pastoral concession? Same thing with divorce. Like, I mean, Jesus in the Bible, very strict on divorce, but we allow, Incredibly strict. Well, you know, we tend to pastorally concede that some marriages need to end for grounds that are not clearly listed in scripture, like abuse. Hmm. And is that a concession to sin? I think it kind of is. It is a concession one must make in the interest of human well-being. And to some extent, some of what I, I, I write about sexuality is in that zone. If I'm hearing you right, you would say, yes, I'm, I'm saying people may have a sex outside of marriage in a, again, consensual monogamous relationship. It's not only not normative, it's not only not ideal, it, it's a concession to, to sin, which to me sounds like you're saying, yeah, it's, it, this is not the right choice ultimately in God's eyes, but it's better than the other choices that might be on the table for you right now best available choice yeah hmm. and or at least better than the other options that are on the table as you said it. it's funny because i'm like having a hard time now finding the distance between us because i'm you know i would say yeah i think that's a sin and yes i agree that's better than the other option on the table but i believe that you will experience the most wholeness in your sexual life if you abstain from sex outside of the confines of a covenant relationship where that sexuality can be expressed in its most beautiful, loving, consensual, committed form. And so I, I want to I help you not experience the pain that comes from, there's, there's that great quote, I think it's from Vanilla Sky, where it talks about, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not just about bodies. I mean, we, we're, there's something that happens to our, our humanness when we have sex with someone. And I don't want you to experience that tearing, that ripping apart. And I hesitate to use that language, by the way, because it's been abused by purity culture and other places. And yet I, I do think that it speaks to the power. It's hard to talk about the power of sex without also talking about the cost of sex as well. And so, yeah, I just, I, it's funny talking because I'm, I'm having a hard time differentiating as, as we speak more and more. And I, and I guess I just wonder why not emphasize what you think is ultimately going to bring them wholeness rather than making concessions. I think I do that in that chapter on sex in African evangelicalism and in my work on sex in kingdom ethics. I mean, I think the overall body of work says that. But the, the difference on LGBT is clear, right? Because the only option offered LGBT people is celibacy on your side, which I think forced celibacy in that sense does not bring wholeness. So there we differ. And there are some people who are in a position where marriage is just simply not thinkable. Um, and we have to think about certain populations for legal reasons or whatever reasons they can't get their economic reasons. So there's some difference there, but yeah, there's, there, there are bigger differences in some of those other yeah. areas, absolutely. And again, I think this goes back to the whole maze metaphor. Uh, this goes to my sense that allowing the Bible in its entirety to be my caller, as it were, guiding me out of the maze. I trust far more than not just culture. I also trust it more than individuals. And I realize and will very strongly acknowledge that there's no such thing as a pure Bible caller, right? Our Bible always comes to us interpreted. It comes to us through subjects who are doing their best to interpret it. But I trust far more subjects 
who are just like me trying to remain faithful and committed to that and the Bible's vision of wholeness, even when it rubs up against what culturally or contextually uh, others might be saying is for the best. And I would love to talk with you about the Bible stuff. We're, we're running low on time though. So <laughs> we didn't hit. Well, let me end with this last question. You in your book, you, you totally preempted me uh, in your chapter on sexuality. I'm listening to you. I'm like, oh man, I want to talk to him about polygamy. Because if we're going to talk about a sexual topic that is, I think, going to be on the rise as a, as a discussion, polygamy would be it. And then you get to the end of your chapter and you ruined it for me. And you say, well, I'm, I, I, I don't think polygamy is within that bounds of healthy sexuality. But I'm curious, obviously, your experience with LGBTQ people uh, shaped the perspectives you ultimately came to on LGBTQ issues. You talk about that as being a part of a community with people. That's what part of what changes your mind on the topic. And my, my curiosity is, could the same thing happen with polygamy? I don't know if you read Andrew Solomon's article in uh, The New Yorker about polygamy. It's a fascinating piece. And uh, what he does is, is he, he kind of walks through versions of polygamy. He begins with this very patriarchal uh, polygamy that's found in some fundamentalist Mormon circles and rejects it. Then he moves to this revolving door polygamy where it's moving sexual partners. And that was kind of your point is if you've got a revolving door of sexual partners, that's not necessarily a great place for children to be right. raised. But he ends the story by beginning to discuss a polygamist who are in lifelong committed relationships, raising children with three or four people. And he tells their stories in a very lovely, moving way. There's one mom who says, look, being sleepless is not a badge of honor. We're able to pursue hobbies and development. We're able to be more present with our kids at, at everything that they do. One of us is always able to be there. They have very much so a three is better than two attitude, and, and they're deeply committed to their child. They're committed for a lifetime. And so I'm just curious. I mean, is there a way that you could come around and say, yeah, you know what? That kind of polygamy, that kind of monogamous, it's covenantal, they're married. Polygamy is, uh, that's that's within the bounds of scripture. Marital, multi-partner, Polygamy certainly got plenty of Old Testament examples. Uh, examples of that. Mainly, they end up <laughs> they don't go so <laughs> demonstrating their problems, right? But it's all it's all patriarchal polygamy, right? Uh, it would be closer to the Mormon model yeah. um, than what we're seeing here. It's a more egalitarian uh, polygamy. I mean, I think it's possible that society is just going to go there. Here, I just keep hearing Jesus and Paul talking about the one partner the covenant with one person and now then you're thinking okay so you're going to draw a line here but what about there and i think that's what we do in the christian community is we're constantly wrestling with with what these texts are to be taken to mean in different cultural contexts and i know this issue of polygamy is a live issue on the mission field you know missionaries build places and do you break up polygamous relationships and all that and i, mm -hmm. I think that's is that cultural imperialism what about all that i mean i'm not an expert on missions but i know that's out there i think that well, I don't have any negotiability at all on one with one, that the relationship needs to be with one person. And I don't think there's space for that in a New Testament vision. Why I won't move on that, I just don't think it is, in the end, good for people. I don't think it contributes to human wholeness, and I don't think it's within the zone of Jesus and New Testament teaching. Yeah, and I, I think I would agree with you wholeheartedly. 
on that. Uh, you're right. That's exactly what goes through my head is those same passages that talk about the one-to-one covenant are passages that very clearly envision it being between a man and a woman, uh, seemingly exclusively. I mean, uh, Jesus obviously goes back to Adam and Eve and sees them as kind of the quintessential uh, starting point, the ideal of what marriage is supposed to be. And it does seem like it's going to be difficult to make a case against polygamy but you, maybe I'm wrong. It seems like it's going to be difficult to make a case against polygamy using the same logic you've used to uh, say that actually that covenant between man and woman can be man and man, though neither Jesus or Paul envisioned or spoke about such things. I mean, I get the difficulty of that. I really do. Mm-hmm. The case I have tried to make is that it's it's about a built-in diversity in the human family that just doesn't go away and that hasn't been adequately addressed by the Christian church. But I now know not to expect that the majority of Christians are going to come along uh, and say, well, that, you know, you're right. That means we need to make some space. You notice how limited my space is? All all that I've said really is this 3% of the population, they need to be grafted into the marital framework and the monogamous for life, no divorce, marital framework that, that is the rigorous teaching of the New Testament. And the reason I got there was because of getting to know both the literature and the people that are involved. We're not going to get that resolved today, but what a, what a great conversation, Patrick. Thank you so much for talking with me today, David. I could go on for another hour easily. I, I'm enjoying this, and you've, you've been very thoughtful and generous with your words and, and generous and kind with me, even as I'm pushing back on some things. So thank you so much for your time today. I, I wish you the best in your future work. Thanks. You too, Patrick. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.